Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Chickens are at this huge disadvantage, as are fish, right? They don't usually vocalize pain, and they don't share facial expressions like we do. Mammals do. And so we have this affinity towards animals that are closer to us. We want to protect them. And the closer they are to us, the more we say, oh, they must feel pain. They're worthy of protection. Hello, welcome to The Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Leah Garces, uh, who is the president of Mercy for Animals and the author of the new book Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. There are two levels to this conversation. Um, one is about Garces' work, uh, who she's been in Georgia working with chicken farmers to try to reform both the way the farmers and the chickens are treated. And the, the sort of remarkable story of her book is – when you're vegan, when you're an animal rights activist, it can be totalizing. What you are looking at, the, the the quantity of death and suffering, you can end up in a very us versus them, um, just need to make my moral stand place. And it's a reasonable place to be. I don't want to insult that. But that doesn't get you very far. Um, just standing up for being on the right side of history so you're not judged harshly in 50 years, that's great. But what about the chickens now? And so Garces has been working to build these coalitions that were pretty new when she started doing it and have had a huge effect on the actual lived lives of chickens. And her book is about both the the tactical and organizing and emotional effort to do that, right? How do you how do you build coalitions? How do you see the humanity in people who it's very easy to see as your enemy? And that's really the second level of this conversation. One of the reasons I wanted her on the show in particular, a lot of politics right now seems to me to be almost kind of anti-politics. You're not trying to figure out how to see the humanity in others and build coalitions with them and get things done. You're trying to show that they're not worth working with, that you don't need to listen to them, that they should be written out of the conversation, that history is going to sweep them by. And I think a lot of that's online, but it's not only online. And recognizing that as a choice and recognizing what it means to choose one strategy there over another, a strategy of trying to find where you can work with people over trying to explain why you won't work with them is a dimension of politics that I don't think we talk enough about um, and that is often dismissed uh, when people are just making their stands. So I thought this was actually a really, a really powerful conversation. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com for feedback, guest suggestions, whatever. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Leah Garces. Leah Garces, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. How did you get into working on animal issues? I think... Like many kids, I always cared about animals. I grew up in Florida. I had ducks in my backyard that um, I had the privilege of 
watching hatch in my mother's flower beds. And that was my first insight. These are animals that have lives. They have dramas. They have um, needs and wants. And I kind of grew up not questioning that. And then when I was about 15, I saw a PETA-esque, I can't remember it, but a PETA-esque documentary like Meet Your Meat. And I was horrified. I was a meat eater and it just blew up my world. And from that point on, I really wanted to help animals. I really wanted to change the way we interacted with them and haven't looked back since. What was your first job in the space? My first job, well, my very, very first job was at Save the Manatee Club in Florida. And I was like the person who did uh, the Christmas membership drive for adopting a manatee. Uh, But that was a very short stint. So my real first job was at Compassion and World Farming in the United Kingdom in London. And that's where I was a research officer. I was really providing the the statistics, the information, the facts about why the system needed to change. What do people not know about world farming that they should? Well, it hasn't changed much, but this was back in the year 2000 and right the turn of the century, which is an exciting phrase. And Y2K. Yeah, exactly. And I was living in England where there was a, a real um, awareness growing about the fact that farmed animals could feel pain, they could suffer. And even at that stage, though, it was questionable to scientists whether fish could feel pain, right? This was still a question in our minds. Uh, And we were going through this change and this realization, wow, we we really should consider the animals we eat. We should consider the lives they lead and their needs and wants. And the, the, the basics were not known. People still thought that Farmed animals are raised in the equivalent of their grandma's backyard. And it was not necessary to be shocking. It was not necessary to dramatize what was happening because the facts were so shocking in and of themselves. The fact that animals are kept in cages, in crates, so small they can't turn around, they can't flap their wings, they can't do anything that we would normally associate with a chicken or a pig. And and this was shocking enough. One of the things that struck me a couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody, um, I was talking to somebody who works on cattle issues. And they were explaining to me that what I had heard about veal when I was young. When I was young, there was this conversation about veal and that they were treated in a way that was truly horrifying. So you shouldn't eat veal. You can eat whatever you want, but not veal. And then they were explaining to me that that had just become the standard of how like Basically, all the animals were treated now, like the the techniques that had been perfected early on, that you were in a cage, you couldn't turn around, you were trying to make the meat soft, et cetera. That had just become standard across a lot of other kinds of animal agriculture. And that was really, that was striking to me. Yeah. You know, I I wonder about that sometimes. So people, we've kind of come out, there are the worst practices that exist, right? There are the cages and crates, which are now in, you know, almost 2020, 20 years after I started working on this issue, are beginning to disappear. So they've been banned in something like 15 states in the mm-hmm. United States. They've been banned in Europe. Uh, cages and crates are going the way of the dinosaur, hopefully. And yet the cruelties and the confinement and the problems are still front and center. And we've only adjusted a little bit, but we've not really still got it in our heads. These animals are not that different from us. They are degrees not kinds of difference. And you, that's important. You talk about the the scientific change where it began to be more broadly recognized that animals can feel pain. 
And you talk in the book about a little bit later, there is more scientific recognition. They can feel pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think a normal human being hearing this, that would sound insane, right? A lot of us grew up with dogs and cats. Um, We've seen goats jumping around on the internet. It seems pretty clear that um, animals can feel pain and that they can feel pleasure, that they have personalities. Is this really something where people needed science or is this something where eventually there just was science that could form the basis for a movement? Yeah, well, if you're trying to convince, uh, you know, 10 plus billion dollar industry to change its practices, they need proof. Mm-hmm. And, and many times in society, we need this kind of proof that this is right. We're not going to go on our emotions or intuitions. Usually it turns out that those intuitions are probably close to the truth, and they're just variations of that that science helps us hone in on. And the issue of you know pleasure in animals, it's obvious if you have a dog or a cat what they love to do, what they enjoy when they're suffering, when they're happy. There is no physiological difference between a pig and a dog, and yet one of them ends up on our plate and the other one ends up in our in our homes. Yeah, a very transformative experience for me, and this will sound so banal, is about eight years ago, my wife and I, we got two dogs. I'd had one dog growing up, and my dog was doggish, and I loved my dog, Pappy, but I didn't really think too much about differences between dogs. And then we got these two, and they're actually sisters, so they're in the same litter. And they're remarkably different. They're more different than I am from most of my friends. Like one of them is this shy, scared, awkward creature who just like wants to be near mom. The other is this explorer and likes to be outside and runs around. And they have such idiosyncratic personalities that it really shattered for me a sense of sameness among animals. And then when I looked into it more, this was obvious and everybody knew it maybe but me. But but there was something undeniable about that that I think ended up being a being foundational for how my politics later evolved, that if there's going to be this much personality between two animals that were this similar, you know, in in their upbringing and their genetics, then the idea that animals were sort of undifferentiated and that their emotional experience of the world was a lot grayer than my own didn't seem plausible anymore. Yeah. And imagine when you think of chicken farming, right? So typically there are 30,000 individual chickens, so like your individual dogs, that are shoved into a warehouse that is darkened and boring and there's nothing to do, living on their own feces. And each of those individuals are having their own individual... What do you mean living on their own feces? So they live on top of litter. They defecate onto that litter and that litter is not changed during their entire life. So that litter is being filled up with their feces. And in fact, from flock to flock, that is often not cleared out for years. So you have probably the feces of their of many, many, many years of flocks uh, that have come before. So that produces an ammonia uh, that is a really, if you've walked into a chicken house, it's a very significant Uh, smell that hurts your eyes. You can taste it afterwards. It's in your hair, kind of like the old days of when you went into clubs and your hair smelled like smoke. It's like that. Like it stays with you, in you. And the animals are experiencing that. That's their only existence. Their whole life is in these long warehouses. And they're, by the end of their lives, they're wall to wall with their, their flock mates. But 
what, you know, is really difficult for most people to get their head around is that each of those animals in those warehouses, they are individuals having an individual experience. And they will have, like your dogs, this varied personality. Some will, you know, want to have lots of friends. Some will want to be alone. Some will be athletic and some will not. And the industry treats, and we as consumers eating these animals, treat these animals like they're potatoes, like they're a monolithic kind of one thing, but they're not. These are individuals with individual needs and wants, and this system can't cater for that, and it benefits from their death economically. There is a pretty deep human ability to empathize with dogs. Somewhat with cats, we've co-evolved with each other, we've domesticated. Chickens are harder. Yeah. You can't, I, I can see the emotions on the face of my dogs. I can't see them on the face of a chicken. And so it's much easier for me to wall off from the idea of chickens as having the experience. Even cows do with their big liquid eyes in there um, or pigs, um, which some people keep as pets. Can you talk a little bit about what, what do we know and not know about the emotional and physical lives of chickens? Chickens are at this huge disadvantage as are fish, right? They don't usually vocalize pain and they don't share facial expressions like we do. Mammals do. And so we have this affinity towards animals that are closer to us. We want to protect them. And the closer they are to us, the more we we say, oh, they must feel pain. They must, they des- they're worthy of protection. And the further they are evolutionary from us, we have an easier time morally excusing abuse of them. And that's what's happened with chickens and fish. But it is it's categorically not true. And there are lots of tests that have shown their ability to have empathy. So chickens, which is, you know, anybody who knows me, I'm like a chicken lady. Like, I love chickens. I know a lot about them. And they're fascinating animals. I think they're like super, I think they have superpowers, actually, if I have to, if I if I had to say. They have superpowers. So they can see colors we can't see. They can see close and far up at the same time. So they can spot like a tiny little bug in the grass I can't even find my keys most mornings, you know, and they can see um, they can also use the Earth's magnetic fields to orient themselves. Like that's that's definitely like superhuman superpower stuff. But what's more in terms of their emotions, if you think of children's literature, it's always depicting the mother hen and her chicks. And there's so many stories. And that's speaking to a truth we know and we're just ignoring. But mother hens evolutionarily, they have to have the ability of empathy, right? They have, this means that they can perceive the suffering of another because they have to be able to perceive and protect their young. And not all animals do that, but pretty much most animals are able to because evolutionarily they needed to. And that's not any different than us. And Chickens can also count. Can you you, you talk a little bit about yeah. the studies around that? Can you right. can you talk about how they've measured that empathy towards the young? Yeah, it's a great study by Joanne Edgar. I think it was at University of Bristol, and it was a really important study to measure that chickens have the ability to have empathy. And so what they did is they did little puffs of air on the chickens, babies, the chicks, and the chicks would, you know show distress. And the mother would display distress as well, seeing this. Now, that sounds like, okay, that's just a reaction. But what then happened is they would be able to anticipate, the the mother hen would be able to anticipate 
that this was about to happen, right? So she could predict and anticipate that this chick was about to have distress and be worried about it and have this concern. Now, that shows like a depth of— Because they could tell that the puff of air was going to come. It was, was a noise or something. Exactly. So they would show the show the puffer that was about to happen, mm-hmm. and they would get stressed and anticipate, oh, my God, my baby's about to have some bad thing happen. Now, that's that's empathy. Yeah. That's what we that's what you feel for your friend when you're like, oh, my God, my friend's like about to be, you know, have their girlfriend break up with them. And now I'm going to feel sorry for them. I'm going right, to. I took my son for shots the other day. Right. Exactly. That's a better analogy. It's exactly like you're going to go take your kid for shots and you're stressed out because you know they're going to suffer. It's the same thing. And baby chicks can also count. They have this ability of like they can understand that two is smaller than three and that six is greater than three right from when they're hatched. They have this mathematical ability right away. So they will – they did tests where they can see that they can choose – they will choose the greater thing right away. Now, we might be like – we don't – Necess- we, we look at that and we're going like, of course, it's bigger. But that's counting. That's understanding. And and that's not always something. Yeah, I mean, human, human, human babies, babies cannot do that. Yeah, they're not going to be able to do that, right? It's a long time before human babies can do that. And so, I mean, these are just some recent tests that I'm so grateful some scientists have done. Now, imagine we were obsessed with chickens and right. we did tests on them all day long like we do on human babies or something. Like we the depth of knowledge we would have about them and would be much greater. And there's a uh, a primatologist named uh, Franz Duval, mm-hmm. and he's a really great thinker and really has moved things forward in terms of how we have this tendency of seeing ourselves as very separate from animals. There's us and there's all of them, but he's really breaking that down. And even from moral code and politics and um, and then empathy – He's defining that these are, again, just degrees of differences, not kinds. We've all evolved to have things like moral codes and empathy. And what, But what he – he wrote a book a few years ago called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? And I thought that was so important of a question to ask. Maybe because we're so different than chickens, we can't – even understand their intelligence, their their emotions, because we're nothing like them, you know, in many ways. We are like them in many ways, but we're also, we don't have the ability to do magnetic, you know, fields. What if the world was ruled by dolphins and chickens? And their test of our intelligence is, do we have sonar and can we orient ourselves in a magnetic field? we would be considered the stupidest animals on the planet. So it's really a lot about questioning that the the tests we do on animals to define whether they're intelligent is all from our perspective and our view of what is intelligence. And the other thing here is the numbers around chickens are like their mind, they're too big to really manage. But something I will tell folks in the audience that I did not expect when I began talking to people in the animal rights and, and suffering movements is chickens are the dominant concern. A little bit fish, but but chickens. Um, I think from the outside, people think about cows or maybe they think about pigs, but but it's chickens because they tend to have both a particularly bad quality of life, but the numbers are astonishing. Can you talk a bit about the scale of chicken farming? Yeah. I wrote this book because I wanted people to try to get to grips with that number 
it's very hard for a human being to understand big numbers. In this country alone, we raise and slaughter 9 billion farmed animals, billion with a B, just to be clear, every year for our consumption. All animals. No, just chickens. Just chickens. And so 90% of all farmed animals are just chickens. So there's 10 billion about farmed animals that are raised and slaughtered every year. 9 billion of those are just chickens that end up on our plates. So not laying hens for eggs, not pigs, not... So combined, all the other animals combined don't even come close to the number of meat chickens that we raise. And globally, it's very it's a very similar picture. And... You can say, when you talk about the meat industry, in terms of numbers, you're talking about the chicken industry. And the United States is the leading producer in the world, so really close head-to-head with China. But regardless, this is the concern. This is the thing we should be concerned about in this country. We want to talk about reducing suffering in this country or globally. Chicken farming is the leading cause of suffering on the planet. And there's a tension in here because I I know a lot of people who, as they begin to be turned on around these issues, will say either for climate reasons, I'm moving away from red meat towards things like poultry and fish, or um, will sort of intuit that cows are bigger, they're more intelligent, pigs are, you know, they say about as smart as a three-year-old. I should move over to something like chickens. You don't want to be eating red meat like that. And that from the animal rights perspective, like this is a catastrophe. Uh, yeah, it's a huge concern, whether you're environmentalist or whatever, that you're saying. I hear people say it all the time. I don't eat red meat. I don't eat chick. I don't eat pigs and cows. I do eat fish and chickens. Mm-hmm. And for me, this like makes me explode because, like I said, that's such a larger number of animals. And what's more, people will say uh, it's because of the environmental impact. And our environmental debate is really narrow, narrowly around greenhouse gas emissions right now, but that is not the true impact of our food consumption. That is one aspect and a really, really big aspect that I think is going to be on the political agenda very soon is arable land and water use. And when you think about a chicken and you think about its impact on his or her impact on the environment, you might be wanting to think just about the box they're kept in, right? But somewhere out there in the world is all the feed, all the grain, all the soy that is being raised somewhere to feed to that chicken. And we use a huge amount of our arable land just to feed animals in tortured factory farm scenarios. What we should be doing if we're really serious about feeding 10 billion people, we need to look, take a cold, hard look at how we're using this arable land. And I think if we were starting all over again, we'd say, this is nuts. Why are we using this plot of land to feed an animal here? We're losing 70% of the calories in the process, and then we're eating that animal, and that animal also is treated inhumanely. It's It's an insane idea we came up with. And what I think we're very quickly going to realize as our land becomes unusable is that we have to be way more serious about soil, how it's used, and that it needs to go directly to humans rather than to a factory-farmed animal to our plate. So one other piece of this context I want to draw out is that my understanding is that chickens, both raised for slaughter and laying hens, are treated compared to some of the other animals that we raise for food. I'm not saying anybody's treated great in this uh, in this process, but Chickens are considered to be the ones that live the most miserable lives, that they have been bred in the way that is most um, violent to their own bodies, that they live with the least space. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. So 
a, a meat chicken has, I'll, I'll say the industry calls it a broiler chicken. So I don't want to use lingo, but I need to differentiate between a laying hen mm-hmm. and a meat chicken, which are totally different species now, which a lot of people don't know. They're subspecies. They, they, they don't interact. They do different things for our industry. And they have different lives in the industrial farming system. And they look very different. They look very different. They live for different amounts of time. You just start there. Like, how do they look? So if you have a white egg, that has come from a white chicken. And that white chicken has a comb, is usually, if, they're, if it doesn't say cage-free, kept in a cage, has a narrow, slimmer body, and their purpose is really to produce uh, eggs. Now, often because if they're kept in a cage, cage, it means they have a lot of feathers missing because their flock mates might be pecking at them. They might be rubbing against the bars all the time. Um, they also, because of this pecking that happens, I mean, if you were on like the subway for your whole life, you'd probably end up throwing a few elbows, right? So this is the same concept and the, and the birds get, they get irritated with each other and they start pecking each other. And then if they see a spot, they start pecking that a lot and, and it can result in cannibalism even in these, in these uh, cages. So they've resorted, as the industry does, instead of saying, huh, why are they pecking at each other? They probably need more space. They're like, no, we'll, we'll just trim off the beak. So they take a hot iron to the tip of the beak and take that beak right off and right right at the tip so they can't hurt each other. Uh, And that's a non-anesthetized procedure. Correct. Yes. It's a horrible procedure that is standard. And it it speaks to the way the industry often solves problems where they they just they just do a band-aid on top of a band-aid on top of a band-aid on top of a band-aid instead of being getting to the root of the problem the root of the problem is these are sentient beings that don't want to live like this and we need to think about them that way not let's just keep pushing them to their to their metabolic and their physical maximum to get what we need out of them with broiler chickens so while the laying hen often has the cage the physical cage broilers, meat chickens, they have a genetic cage and their bodies are their cage. So what we've done over the last 50 years is we've selectively bred a bird to grow as big as possible, as fast as possible, so we can get as cheap meat as possible. And now the result for these animals is they're essentially a franken-chicken. This is a franken-chicken. They are like a grape on two toothpicks. And they can hardly hold their own weight. So at the at day 40, 25% of birds, and this was a scientific study, have great difficulty walking, and 3% can't walk at all. And this is because they have been we, – we are very focused on growing a bird that has large breasts because that's what we like to eat. And who cares about the rest of the body and how it keeps up? So the organs, the lungs, the heart have difficulty. They have difficulty breathing. They have difficulty uh, with their immune system, their guts. And they also have difficulty with their muscular skeletal system, meaning they collapse under their own weight. Their legs are in constant pain. And we know that because there was a study done and welfare scientists did a study where they offered these chickens two types of feed. One had the essentially like aspirin in it and the other one didn't. And the birds categorically chose the one with aspirin in it because they were in pain. And they knew to cho- after they realized, okay, this is going to help my pain. And and so this the the fundamental problem it's terrible right this yeah. is horrible and and it's all to it's all driven by our and demand. Can I say for, one thing about this? Yeah. Sorry, just like as somebody who hosts conversations like this, I'm sitting here in this conversation, and this is all horrible. I know some of it, not all of it, and like the thing I'm worried about it, like as I watch that clock move, is like just losing people. 
Yeah. Right. It. This is one of those issues where just talking about it straightforwardly, like I don't even like being here right now. <laughs> I like, can see your not, body language is like, fun. oh man, this is like not it's a not a fun issue to look at in the face. And I just want to note that because if you are feeling that, if you are listening to this, and like there's a probably just wants to turn it off. I, one, I promise I'm not just going to do the whole conversation about how terrible chickens' lives are. But there's a reason I'm laying it out, or I want um, Leah to lay it out. Well, one, because I think it's important, but two, because it's going to offer a frame for um, some more of, of, of the story that comes next. But I just want to note that this is a hard – it is hard to face up to this. You mentioned um, in your in your book uh, an Albert Schweitzer quote about the worst suffering is the suffering you refuse to see. And like th- that, we're, we're really there in this one. Um, this is suffering that it is so bad that to talk about it is to make it hard to keep enough people in the room to do anything about it. It's a hell of an issue. It really is. And that's why I wrote the book the way I did. And I was worried that if I wrote a book that just spoke truth to what's happening, people wouldn't get past the first page. We were talking a minute ago about how we're growing the broiler chickens. Just one last thing on this. How long does a chicken live in the wild? In the wild? Oh. I mean, assuming, what is its lifespan, assuming it's not eaten by a whatever? Right. Uh, eight to ten years, let's say. And If you how, have a really great chicken that's living a really great life, we, yeah. And how long do the broiler and egg-laying chickens, what is their life cycle? The life cycle of a meat chicken is approximately 40 days. So they're babies. They're not even. But they're fully, but not only are they, but they're right. fully grown beyond what you see in the wild. Oh, yeah. I just want to note this because it's a weird way in which we've created – these are not animals in the way we think about them. They're a technology. They're a technology that can feel enormous pain, but they're a technology. Yeah. There's a point Bruce Friedrich has made on the show before, but there's something really strange about the way I will hear people talk about, well, it's naturally meat. Maybe. Um, I'm not saying people haven't done it before, but it's not natural necessarily this meat. We have gone way past the boundaries of the natural. Like we are operating in a whole new space. There's nothing natural about keeping an egg-laying hen in a cage or a broiler on their own feces with tens of thousands of other broilers. There's nothing natural. That's that's not something that an animal would ever choose to do in nature. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Leia Garces. When you learn about this, and among the people who choose not just to learn about this but to devote themselves to it, it's very totalizing. When you look around and you see the scale of the harm, the scale of the death, the scale of the suffering— the degree to which people don't want to look at it. A lot of people who go into the animal rights movement, it it changes you. I mean, the world becomes grotesque. Like the world becomes a, a horror show. And the people around you, people you otherwise love and respect and admire, they're doing something all the time that now having like opened yourself to this seems um, abhorrent. And one of the things that I've seen that kind of politics do to people is – it, it almost drives you off of politics. It's like it's not so much even about what you can do so much as about standing up against it, right? At least being a person in this age who was not complicit. I'm curious in your early years in the movement, which side of that you fell on, whether it was sort of the, the more radical, like we need to confront people with the horrors of what they're doing versus we need to bring them along and persuade. And I don't say that with a, an affection for one side or the other, just that this is a – it is a thing that happens to people, I think, understandably, that is a very important fork in their personal path, at least for some time. Yeah. I don't know why, but I always was 
very pragmatic. I don't know if it's because I came into this issue professionally in the United Kingdom, where it was a very professional space already, where the United States was a good 10 years behind, right? Um, And I had a science background. You know, I did zoology. I just came at it like, this is provable. Like, I just need to get people the facts. This is not just about animal rights. This is also about it's destroying the planet. It's not good for communities. It's not good for anybody. I just need to get everybody the facts. If I just work on that, I'll eventually, like, convince everybody. So How'd that work out for you? It did not. It did not work <laughs> out, you know? And that was the hard lesson for me. And I think for many activists is, like, if, if they only knew what – if people knew the facts, they change what they're doing. I just – you know, you have this, like, faith that if humanity had more information, they'd do the right thing. And this is true in almost every big issue, I will say. I mean, you talk to people on climate, you talk to people uh, who deal with poverty, you talk to, like, there is a, once you're deep in something, and once you see its injustice and you see what's happening, there's an alienation that comes after a while when you get the feeling that the public knows, or at least should know or can know, has been given the opportunity to know. And like, why won't they? Right. And it's a hard I, – I found that's a, a hard space in people's – a hard moment in people's evolution in organizing. Yeah. And you you get – so you go through the phase of like, oh, my God, I learned all this information. Now I have to share it with everyone. And if anybody – everybody knew, they just changed like I did. That's phase one, right? Mm-hmm. And then phase two is when you realize they're not going to. And you realize – and then you get angry. So I, I got angry after like I got into it a good 10 years after where I was like, what the hell? Like, this is why can't people change? Why aren't they listening? My family members, my friends, like they know how much I care about this. They agree with me. And then we go to dinner and they're eating butterball turkey. I don't get it. And then I still have moments like that where I have to walk away from, um, you know, an event with family and friends and take like six deep breaths in the bathroom because I'm like, I'm going to lose it. This is, I can't believe you care about me. You know what I do. You understand how wrong this is. You passionately agree with me, and then you still do it over and over again. Then once you get through that phase, the phase that I'm at now is it doesn't matter if I convince everyone that chickens are special. What matters is the the impact. So let me remember that, and let me find the win-win to get everybody there. Everybody's got competing priorities. There's a lot of things. Like, people are not the same, and they're not going to live their life with ethical choices being their only compass, you know, choosing their food from an ethical perspective. They're just not. And you accept, the sooner you kind of accept that you're not going to convince everybody with a moral compass on how to eat or not eat, the sooner you can get to changing and shifting things. And so now I'm working with people that a decade ago I thought were the evilest people on the planet, and then I'm sitting down with them, and and we don't agree on a lot of things. So I was in West Virginia just in the last few days, and I'm talking to ex-factory farmers. They hunt. You know, they're Trump voters. They're super religious. And we're sitting down and having really important conversations about how to shift the food and farming system. And I really like them. They are my friends. I genuinely finding friendship with people that are really different than me. Were you there 12 years ago? I was not there 12 years ago, no. What what happened? Well, what happened was I met a a farmer, a factory farmer, chicken factory farmer named Craig Watts. So I had been, you know, I moved from London to the United States uh, in around 2009. 
And I started to try, I started to be really angry about, I was living in Georgia, right? Surrounded, like every direction, chicken factory farming. And I was really angry about it. And I wanted to see what it looked like. And I wanted to get inside. And I wanted, and I kept calling companies and I kept calling people and no one would answer my calls. No one would respond. And you couldn't find any photos even on the internet. You couldn't find any, there hadn't been an undercover investigation for a decade. The idea that so much of food hacktivism, animal rights activism, works off of undercover investigations so people can see where the food we eat is being produced is just a crazy Philip in the whole thing. I mean, we could talk about ag-gag laws and other things, but there are certain things that they become normal and you forget that they're weird. But the fact that it takes constant uh, illegal, often undercover investigations to just see what is happening where the food that we eat is produced is just a a strange fact of the system we live in. It is infuriating. And it's getting worse so that people are aware. There are ag-gag laws that have yeah. been passed now, which I know you know about, but it, it means that it is— But for is, those who don't know about them. For those who don't know about it, an ag-gag law, which exists in states like Arkansas and North Carolina, which make it illegal, a crime, to report abuse in a slaughterhouse, in a farm. You go to jail, not the abuser— the reporter, the whistleblower. And this makes our job really difficult to shine a light on this darkness. And Mercy for Animals, where I work, has um, has done an incredible job. We've done 60 investigations over we're more than anybody else put together, any other group, undercover investigations. And this has become incredibly difficult to do legally now. We are trying to navigate the system, but all of the states where the majority of animals live and are raised for our food, you can't see what's happening. That is not okay. This is it's acting like this is a like a nuclear waste site or something. You can't access the very basics of how is our food and farming, the how are chickens being raised, how are pigs being raised, how are cows being raised. But there's something really profound in that. I, I always think that this moment of the cards really being on the table. There's no doubt that people have dissonance around their food. And we were talking a moment ago about the frustration people who move to somewhere like veganism or environmental eating or or some other format of more ethically constructed food choices feel when they can't convince their family members. But also when you ask people and when you talk to people, you don't have to convince them that animals being tortured um, before they're killed is bad. They don't want animals to suffer. I mean, it's a very famous and often replicated survey result that people say like, yeah, I want to eat burgers, but I don't think slaughterhouses should exist. And you can look at that and get frustrated by it, but it also speaks to, we all have contradictory and conflicting impulses here. And one thing that the industry has figured out is that one way to resolve that tension in their favor is to simply stop anyone's ability to confront people with the fact that what they're eating violates their values. Now, maybe people know in some way, but it's very different to see it. And that's, to me, a on the one hand, it's incredibly unjust and, and indecent. But on the other hand, it does speak to something here, which is that this isn't. there are issues that I have worked on where you're really trying to convince somebody of something they don't already believe. Right. They think X, they they don't believe in climate change, you're trying to convince them it's real, or they don't believe that the government should give people health care, and you're trying to convince them that it should. And then animal issues are one where you really don't have that problem. Most people think that animals should be treated well. They just don't want to think about it too hard. Um, and they're not given very much information. In fact, there are laws that keep them from seeing how bad it actually is. And the space that people operate in is a kind of rational ignorance. Um, but it's a 
rationally constructed ignorance by people who are <laughs> spending a lot of money and a lot of lobbying money and enacting laws to make sure that ignorance is is protected and sustained. Yeah, it's um, pretty clear in my mind that if people had to watch a little video right before they bought their chicken, mm -hmm. even in the best circumstances, people would walk away. I think the majority of people would walk away. They go, mm. especially if there was like a cheaper plant-based alternative sitting side by side. And so, you know, our job as activists is to do our best to shine a light on that darkness, despite all the hurdles, despite it, you know, our objective is to challenge this at the Supreme Court level eventually. This is unconstitutional. You, you shouldn't be restricted in this way. If, if let's say somebody from being able to see it, from being able to yeah. see. How I want to, by the way, give a shout out to Julian Castro, who just brought out a really good um, policy package that, among other things, would get rid of ag gag laws. And um, Cory Booker that. is also vegan. I think Tulsi Gabbard is vegan. She if I'm is. not wrong. So Correct. there's there is a the beginning kind of nascent burbling of animal issues becoming part of a progressive agenda. Um, that I think is really it's, – it's interesting and worth – it's something that certainly I'm tracking and trying to think about. Um, but you met Craig. Craig. How did you meet him? Okay. So Craig Watts lives in Fairmont, North Carolina, which is the poorest rural county in North Carolina. So the likelihood of he and I ever meeting was zero, right? You're in Georgia. I'm in Atlanta, metropolitan city. Um, but a journalist uh, through Reuters contacted me. He wanted me to come and analyze some documents he had gotten a hold of, which were uh, – I met him in a coffee shop like down the road for me. And we sat and looked at these papers as I'm pouring over them. I'm looking at them and they are these really confidential, difficult to get pieces of information about the antibiotics that go into the feed of chickens. Now, this is like commercially sensitive information and I'm thinking – and I asked him, like, where did you get this? This is insane. This is I've never seen this. These are these are the precise amounts that are being given to chickens over many years in one particular farm. I'm thinking he's about to say, I did an undercover, like somebody snuck it out. And he's like, Oh yeah, this guy named Craig Watts gave it to me. And um, who's Craig Watts? He's a chicken farmer for Purdue. And I thought this guy's probably crazy. What's going on? And I said, Will you introduce me? He starts texting and Immediately, I'm hooked up with Craig. Craig and I start talking over a number of phone calls. And eventually, I work, work up the courage to say, can I come to your farm? I've been trying to see what this looks like, and I want to see with my own eyes. Can I come? And can I bring a camera? Because I think everybody else should see it, too. And he agreed. Um, and really, the that's... That, can I ask you about, <laughs> like, making that ask? Yeah. Because what you just said is that if people could see this, they would not eat it. So you're asking this chicken farmer to let you into his farm so you can use his farm as the object lesson for why people should not consume his product. That is not the normal kind of request we make of each other. Yeah. What, what made you feel like you'd say yes or maybe or just not hang up? Well, I spent a bit of time talking to him first and building some trust we both have kids. We had plenty of commonalities that we built as a kind of foundation for the relationship first. Um, the other thing is that he was also not happy about the industry. And this was why he was in a situation where he was able to talk to me, I think. He also was crossing that bridge and we were meeting in the middle where he was saying this was at the time, and since then Purdue has made a lot of progress, 
at the time, they were calling this humanely raised. And I was infuriated by it. I had gone into it like a supermarket, into a Kroger. I saw it and I was shocked. I asked the meat manager. I made the meat manager like drag the box out to find out where it was going. I'm like, why is this called humanely raised? Is there like, is it a certification? Nobody could tell me. And the further I dug into that, it, it, it had no meaning for the animals. And Craig had similarly seen a commercial Purdue had done, which said you know, the chickens are raising, you know, being raised in this great way and farmers are being treated great. And he was like, uh, uh-uh, that's not true. And I can't, I can't do this anymore. He had had many years of struggles trying to raise animals like that. And he wanted out, but he couldn't get out, um, which is a situation for many farmers who are under the contract farming system. Can we talk about the contract farming system for a minute? Because the the structure of this is probably not what people think it is. So Purdue, Tyson, Montclair, these massive chicken producers. Right. I think the assumption certainly that I had is that they are raising their chickens and feeding them, slaughtering them, and then putting them in, in supermarkets. It's not true. Not true at all. So I'll give you the context of Craig. So in 1992, Craig wanted to stay on his land. He wanted to raise his kids in this beautiful part of North Carolina. There's nothing else going on in North Carolina. Tobacco industry's fallen out. And to do that, he has to find something to do. So chicken industry comes to town and says, here, if you raise chickens for us, we'll pick them up at the end of end of their lives and we'll pay you for that. So that he's essentially like a chicken babysitter, right? But he has to take out a giant loan. So he took out a quarter of a million dollars in 1992 to build two houses. And these two houses have, he has to he has to take care of all those costs. So it's like a mortgage, essentially. And Purdue drops off the chickens and they say, well, the only way to pay off this loan is if you keep raising chickens for us. Because remember, this is Fairmont, North Carolina. There's nothing else going on. There's no other way to pay off this loan. So the only way he can pay it off is he keeps raising chickens flock after flock after flock after flock. So that goes great at first when the houses are new and clean and everything's shiny and fantastic. But after a while, it's a factory farm. The chickens start to get sick. And when they get sick, he gets paid less because he only gets paid for the number of chickens he can bring to the slaughter weight. And so if a lot of them get sick, he pays the price, not the company, right? Because they say it will be his management problem, his health problem. Is this why the company wants to do it this way? Why do why do Purdue and the others not want to? Because you could imagine they'd want to be fully integrated. They have control over the product. I mean, it's really important where you get your core product. Um they're paying for a lot of this, and they're giving big loans so he can build these barns. I mean, there's a lot happening here in terms of their integration. They're not just buying from a producer. They're really controlling the producer. Why don't they just want to hold the whole thing in their own corporate structure? Yeah. So one thing, Purdue doesn't give the loans. Our banks give the loans. And those loans are backed by U.S. tax dollars. And they fail all the time. And we pay for those. So those $200,000 loans that Craig was taking— They're from a normal bank. They had nothing to do with Purdue. Purdue prepares the paperwork, the business plan that says this is why he should get this loan. Got it. So you kind of guide farmers through the process. Correct. And and, and there's a close connection between mm-hmm. integrators and banks. Okay. And those loans are backed by the U.S. tax dollar, like our taxes are pay for those loans when they when they don't work out. What, what, do, what do you mean by that? These are private banks giving out the loans. Why do our taxes pay for them? Well, they are federally insured. 
And so when they fail, when those big, I mean, these are, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars of loans. So billions, sorry. So for example, ch- contract f- chicken farmers in total owe $5 billion. And many of them don't work out. They're not able to pay. They default on their loans. And when they default, that's where the tax dollar, the insurance will pay for that. Sorry, I'm I'm being dumb here, but through what program are we federally insuring these loans? I mean, I understand the FDIC insures like individual bank deposits. Yeah. But I believe if Vox fails and some loan the bank gave us, I don't know that we have a bank loan, but they just eat the money. That's why they would do their due diligence on us in the first place. Is there something special happening in the the agriculture space where where there's a program that makes that not true? Yes. And I don't know the precise details, mm-hmm. but the connection between so the chicken industry is subsidized, right, mm-hmm. in general, including these pri- these private companies yeah. are subsidized. Agriculture in general. In general, is right. It's subsidized, subsidized and protected. Right. And this is part of that arrangement. It's part of ensuring we always have food on our table and we always have you know, chicken is considered a food that the government backs up. So when, for example, there's an overproduction, the government buys it out. Or there's an underproduction, there's some kind of mechanism that helps to increase the price and demand. Got it. So why does Purdue want to do it this way? Well, not just Purdue. The chicken companies in general, if it was valuable, they would take it. It's not valuable. It's the risky part of the business. There's two risky parts of this business. It's raising the chickens— and it's the waste. And both of those are outsourced to the farmers. That's what they outsource. They outsource the risk. So the farmers saddle all of that risk, and the companies take the rest, which is the profitable part of the business. The, the waste is probably worth talking about for a minute because it's not just a problem for the farmers, but there are communities where these farms are concentrated. The waste is often not disposed of well, and the communities really suffer. Yeah. Like, There's a big externality in this yes. industry. Um, so... What happens is there's chicken litter, right? So the chicken litter is either the top of it is cleared out each flock or the whole thing is cleared out. And then that's sat somewhere on the farm. Like it just sits there and it's uncovered and it's sitting there. And in some states, there's regulations around how long that can sit uncovered. In other states, um, it's less stringent. But then they have to do something with all this waste, all this chicken litter, which is a mix of like feathers and feed and feces. And they just spread it on land. There's nothing else to do with it, right? There's 9 billion chickens defecating per year, and they're all pooping. And that poop goes onto our fields. And we have high concentrations of phosphorus and nitrogen as a result. That goes into our waterways. And at times, we'll see our waterways explode with algae and all kinds of problems that make it we can't swim in it. So I live in Georgia, and Lake Lanier is one of the largest recreational uh, lakes in the nation. And it is constantly having problems because of the surrounding chicken industry. And the runoff that comes from all these fields that have been sprayed and, and covered in chicken poop and that runs off into our lakes and makes it unusable. Like, I never want to go to Lake Lanier now. I Thinking of all of the runoff in, from chicken litter that's around. So they're getting out of the risk. Craig is indebted to them. It works out for a while. It stops working out. Right. Then... The bills remain the same for Craig and all farmers. They have the same mortgage they have to pay every month. And they are completely reliant on the flocks working out every single flock. Something goes wrong, if there's disease, if something happens for whatever reason, they can't pay that bill anymore. And if that happens a few times, that means everything is at risk. Those loans are often tied to their land. So 
if they default on that loan, they're going to lose their land, which was the very reason they decided to do this in the first place, because they want to stay on this land. So a lot of farmers are fed up. They're really fed up with this system. There's something even worse within it called a tournament system. So a tournament system is essentially um, there are a group of farmers in a complex, and they are competing against each other for who can bring the bird to slaughter weight the most efficiently, basically the cheapest, right? How can they get the biggest bird for the least amount of feed, which, by the way, is the worst possible scenario for welfare. What happens is the farmers at the top get paid more and the farmers at the bottom get paid less, even though their bills are the same, even though the chicken company has a one commodity price mark. Like in the market, it costs the same to buy chicken. So the farmer at the top is literally taking money away from his neighbors if they're at the bottom. And so if you stay at the bottom for a while, you're going to default on your loan. You're going to not be able to pay your bills. You're going to lose your land. You're going to lose everything. It's a, it's a messed up system. Not all of the chicken industry uses this system, but the large majority of the large companies do. And it really should – it should be banned. And what led Craig to, to go to journalists and, and, and talk to you? Because what you're describing here is a world in which Purdue has a lot of power over him, which is scary um, if things are going poorly. But if he – goes public, that's not exactly going to make Purdue happier with him. It's probably not going to make him a more popular chicken farmer. I mean, what what comes next? Craig was in a unique circumstance where he had been doing this for 22 years and it almost paid off his loan. He was like six payments away, right? So he felt he was in a position of not privilege, I won't call it privilege, but a position in which he could go out if he lost, he done the math. If he lost it all, he felt like with some part-time jobs, he could still make, he could still pay off the rest of that loan, right? So, you know, he decided to to speak up and out against this industry because of that. Regardless, it was really scary to do. And he and I had many sleepless nights. I was a complete insomniac during that period, worrying about getting sued. You know, them cutting him off before we had time to go out publicly about this issue. And it was really scary for he was also worried about what do my neighbors think? You know, they're relying on this. If I, you know, they're going to be upset if there's a, a, a bad PR on this because that's their livelihood. It's a very complex system where, I mean, they're essentially indentured servants and it's scary for them to speak up in any way. And for whatever reason, Craig decided to anyway. And I really think that when that happened, it was the beginning of, of change in the chicken industry. The unlikely partnership, uh, when I was the ED of Compassionable Farming at the time, so I was you know, still the animal rights activist and a, a vegan animal rights activist and a chicken factory farmer coming out, out together, it was unheard of. Usually, the with the undercover investigations, the connection between the two was totally adversarial, mm-hmm. where... We go in, like Mercy for Animals, we go in, we expose an abuse. The company f- then fires the person on the farm and then gets off, right? They they say, oh, that's just one bad apple. Now, this was coming at it from the bottom and saying, no, it's a system that's wrong. This system is wrong. And coming out together, a farmer and an activist, an animal rights activist, coming together and saying that was just really powerful. Well, let me explore why that's a tense space, though, because one thing happening there is 
there is a view among a lot of animal rights activists that what you want is not better, slightly more ethical chicken farming. What you want is for people to stop eating chicken. Like Craig does not want or did not want, I guess, um, like an end to all chicken farming. What he wanted was for the conditions for farmers like him and the conditions in which his chickens live to be somewhat better. And there's always that real tension, particularly on something that can feel as morally black and white as this, certainly the people in the animal rights movement, of are you being accommodationist to a sick system and thus becoming part of it um, versus is this what you can do and thus you're, you're, you're reducing the most suffering. How did you think about that and, and what was some of the, the pushback you got from people on, on your side of the aisle? Well, I continue to think about things through the lens of suffering and if suffering can be quantifiable, which in some ways it is, my purpose is to reduce suffering. And if you walk into a conventional factory farm system with it's dark and it's crowded and the animals are living in their feces and a horrible life, and you walk into a house that has windows and a little more space, you, it's very clear those animals are suffering less. And if they're a different breed, even less. And so for me, life is short. And I'm not going to stop suffering on the planet, but I can reduce it. And any system that's leading us in that direction, we have to pursue. The, and and the, the kind of basic analogy that I use often when people present me with this like, aren't you just perpetuating meat eating? Aren't you just perpetuating the system? I use this analogy. I say, look, if you were a prisoner in death row and you were in a horrible prison, what would you want some advocate to do? Would you want someone to only advocate for the end of the death penalty? Or would you want them to advocate for the end of the death penalty while improving your prison conditions in the time that it takes to achieve that? You would very clearly want the latter. And that's what animals will want. If they could talk to us, that's, they would say, you know, it's going to take a long time for people to stop eating animals. And it's probably going to take some big technological offerings for us to achieve that. In the meantime, just don't, don't leave us here in this horrible condition. Work on improving it while we move towards a market and a business solution where everybody wins. There's a, I think that has become a more um, standard view. Was that true at the time you started doing this or was there more controversy in your circles? It's a, it's a principle I've always held, honestly, um, most of the time. I do have my moments of anger, but I grew up in a, I, I grew up, I have an uncle who's a butcher and a, and a hunter and I love him. I have a uncle who's a, a geologist for Chevron. My dad sold nuclear power plants. And I got into it with each of them, you know, another one who worked for Lockheed Martin doing like weapons, right? So, but I loved each of them and I really enjoyed the conversations we had about their perspective. You, know, you could have those conversations without agreeing and you could maybe change their mind a little bit in some ways. And I have definitely um, been criticized a lot for this approach from the more like pure purist in our movement. But I think when I hear them, I think it's not them I need to convince. They're already doing the right thing. They're already not eating animals. And I don't need to reach them. I really don't. I only need to reach them if they want to talk to the meat eaters. That's my, if I want to talk to them, I, my need to engage with them is more about getting them to be better advocates that convince others. But the the truth is only 5% of the 
the United States is vegetarian. And the rest are engaging in, in this practice. And that hasn't changed much over time. It has not changed in 20 years. So 20 years ago, there people were... People really feel like it's changed. It feels to me like it's changed. I mean, basically nobody's vegan, but you seem to meet more vegans. It's vegan and vegetarian is the 5%. Mm-hmm. So there may be more vegetarians that have turned vegan, but the there's only... In the last 20 years, that number has not shift, shifted. And, and, and this is a hard number for me to face, but there are more animals being slaughtered today than ever before in history. By a lot. By a lot, right? So that's like something that's hard for me to wake up to every day and know, empirically speaking, we're failing. And that's true in America. And also, I mean, I think people understand that as global, right? You have China becoming richer. You have India becoming richer. You have, you know, Bangladesh and so on. Um, But in America, that's true, too. Globally, the United Nations predicts that by 2050, the number of farmed animals that are raised and slaughtered will double. So we're right now at about 70 billion. And we're looking in by 2050 to go to 140 billion if we carry on the way we are. 70 billion a year? Correct. It's a mind-boggling number. Let's take a, a quick break. This became a bigger coalition. Yeah. It's not just you and Craig. Mm-hmm. What was that bigger coalition and what did it achieve? Right. So there were a coalition of six organizations uh, that came together and started to hone in on what could we change within the industry? How could we reduce suffering of the animals in the chicken industry? Uh, we had learned our lessons from uh, eggs from laying hens. So in a very short period, we had campaigned and got over 200 companies to agree to go cage-free by a certain date. So big companies like McDonald's and Walmart. And this gave us a lot of energy and faith that we could change things. This was monumental. And there were a couple lessons we learned about that. And one of them was we need to ask for something that's like a time-bound commitment is important. We need to be very clear about what we're asking for. So cage-free is super clear. Um, But there were also some things we could have done better. So one of them was being more specific about cage-free, right? So cage-free is great, but cage-free can be all kinds of things. It can literally mean your battery cage and you open it up and they're just walking around, Mm -hmm. right? Or it can mean pasture-raised. The spectrum was really big and companies always do, most companies do the minimum that they need to do. So we're like, okay, we have to be clearer next time about what we're asking for and what it means for the animals. We also were clear that we needed to work in a tighter coalition. So previously, we hadn't, we'd all been working on the same thing, but not really talking to each other and thinking this through in this clear way. Um, And we formed a coalition, which you can see online. It's, we're open about it. Now, these are very different groups. We're talking about very conservative groups to very extreme groups. Give me some examples. Um, so, you know, the HSUS is a household. That, that's the Humane Society for the mm-hmm. United States. This is a household name. Uh, they are they do dogs and cats. You know, they're a friendly, you know, kind of group. All the way to the Humane League, right? The Humane League is like a very. Uh, um, they launch campaigns that are very aggressive and in your face and. Um, you know, and were chicken farmers involved in this coalition? No, these were animal rights advocates mostly. Uh, there were six animal animal mm-hmm. organizations. So it was Mercy for Animals, Compassion in World Farming, um, the Humane Society for the United States. Uh, I'm not going to remember them all now, but um, yeah, and the Humane League and some others. Yeah, so the we came together. We defined what we would ask companies, and then 
while we agreed we don't have the same tactics, we don't have the same strategies, this is what we'd ask of companies. So every time somebody would go to a company, this would be the line we would not cross. And that's what we continue to do to this day. We've had over 140 companies now agree to these terms, including uh, a slower growing breed or a better a breed of chicken with better welfare outcomes, more space, uh, controlled atmosphere stunning, which means that the birds are not shackled in the slaughterhouse conscious. They're already unconscious before that, so they don't they suffer less at slaughter, uh, enrichments and lighting. So we kind of created a mini standard that we wanted companies to sign up to. But what's more, and for me, the the like arc of the story is, I still can't believe it, is Purdue, after about a year of stonewalling me, called me up and said, hey, let's let's talk. I had been writing them and writing them, and they said, you know what? This is covered in the New York Times, what you right. were doing. I mean, this became a media thing. Right. So we had coverage in the New York Times. We um, the, the video in one day had a million views. It blew up, and it, they couldn't ignore it. And later as well, that was when I was with Compassion Wolf Farming, and then at that same year, Mercy for Animals did an undercover investigation showing what was happening. So these two combined pressures... Uh, I remember Mark McKay, who is currently the president of the Fresh Foods at Purdue, he tells this story of when they're looking at this footage from Mercy for Animals, they were, they said, we all can agree this is not okay, right? And has anybody called them? And everyone was like, no, no. And he's like, well, we should. And we should talk to them about this because we all agree this is not okay. And they said, okay, you do it. <laughs> and so, But so that's an interesting thing right there. Right. This, uh, we all agree it's not okay because I think the, the theory and some – degree, the theory of the book, a little bit the theory of Craig in the book, is that, well, they may not want it on their hands, but they're actually the ones creating the conditions in which it has to happen. That the video you put out, like what what Purdue says is that Craig is a bad farmer. This is not okay. We would never allow it. And what you all are saying is, no, 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 you've created it. Craig is like a good farmer. You've decorated him as a top producer before. So who's right in that? Is is it true it's that the they- no, the system is is very limited. It doesn't allow it wouldn't allow a farmer to put less chickens in that barn or a different breed. Those are the basic problems. Like they can't put windows in unless the the company wants them to or allows them to. They can't put, you know, enrichments and strail bales mm-hmm. and things for them unless the company allows them. They can't change any of the inputs. But the farmer is responsible for those outputs. So the DM part here is that maybe the people at Purdue didn't like this, but they had enough plausible deniability on it that even though they're the ones creating these conditions, they didn't feel like it was on them. Like, like what is your psychological explanation here? What was happening there? I believe they think they thought that Craig was a bad farmer. I think in some ways they still think that. And... Do you think conditions on his farm were worse? No. I think that he had very little control over what he could and couldn't do. They had just taken antibiotics out of the system, and they were keeping chickens in the exact same way. And now he has more disease and more problems. On a typical chicken farm, these are sta- these are standard statistics that the National Chicken Council puts out. There's around a 5% mortality. That's considered normal. That means 5% of the birds that go in there are dying. Like, they just do. And the job of the chicken farmer is to pick up the dead birds. And... That means that over this, like, short 40-day period and 30,000 birds, right, that's 1,500 birds die. That's normal. That's the job. So that means, like, 30, 40 birds a day. That's their job is to go pick those you, up. You talk about cr- walking through with Craig in the morning, and this is something that farmers in general need to do, and just 
going through and doing killings of all the deformed mm-hmm. or lame or, I mean, just like by hand, like snapping out their necks. Yeah. It's called cervical dislocation. And it's snapping their necks out. Some guy, that has to happen on farms, but the the scale of it, I mean, doing it day after day is That's really a something. daily job. Yeah. That's a daily job of a farmer is, and if you talk about talk to chicken farmers, it's like, a, it's actually backbreaking difficult work. Yeah. And I also wonder what it does to a person psychologically mm-hmm. to like go through the houses and have to find the weak and decrepit birds or the runts because the runts mm-hmm. are like, hmm, that's not worth the math. Let me do the math on that bird. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure it's worth the feed. I'm going to kill that bird early because it's not worth it. And you go through and it's, you know, it's 30 to 40 birds per day in a 30,000. If you think just, you know, I'm saying on average. And what really happens is towards the end, there's a lot more because then they really are like hanging on and they can't really function very well. And then the problem is at the end, the, the, the farmer's having to do the math, right? They're like, I already put all this money through the feed into this bird. Can they hang on for three more days? Even though they don't look good, they look like they should be euthanized. But mm, I'm going to hang on because if I kill that bird, that's money out of my pocketbook. Mm-hmm. Exciting for us consumers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the farmers I was just with in West Virginia, they had this horrible disease called gangrenous dermatitis. It was essentially, it's essentially, it's, 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 a, it's a bacteria that eats the birds from the inside out. And it it's really repulsive and it's suff- the birds suffer a lot. So in a 24-hour period, you'll see the birds and it looks like they're not it's not happening and then the next day you'll just find this like gelatinous mush of purple and green, right? Towards now what happens the way they get it is really through eating the feces that's on the litter and it's through like a coccidiostat that settles in their gut and then emerges like 22 to 30 days later and starts to manifest itself in some of the animals. And then the birds get sick, and it it can double, it doubles the infection every, in the flock, every day, right? So a farmer knows if they've got it, oh no, like this is gonna happen, and they just can't keep up. So when I was working with these farmers, they were pulling 400 birds out of a house, you know, in a day, and then it would be 800 the next. And then you know that more of those birds have it, but they go off to slaughter, and they end up on our plates. So we know that diseased birds are ending up on our plates. We know that. And and that's not just from like infectious kind of diseases, but also like myopathies that are happening in the in the muscles, meaning like the actual muscle tissue is starting to break down in these animals, in the chickens. So we have something called white striping and woody breast, which is losing, some, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for the industry right now because the bird is made to grow so fast that the breast tissue starts to break down. And they've defined it as woody breast, spaghetti meat, and white striping. So if you go into a supermarket, you can sometimes see these white stripes, and you're like, oh, that's marbling, or what is that? It's not. It's disease. It's like muscular disease of the birds. It's called white striping. You can Google it. It's super easy. Woody breast, Google it. It's been, it's where the, the, it's literally woody. This is all gross, but does it hurt humans? I mean, people eat a lot of chicken. They're not mainly getting sick. They don't. They, well, they're not getting sick from any of these things, but they do get sick from Campylobacter. And chicken is one of the main uh, vehicles for humans getting Campylobacter and Salmonella. One of the the evolutions you go through in the book is moving from seeing the farmers running these uh, chicken factories, I guess, from being the people in charge of the system, right, the people you're fighting, to being victims of the system. And that seems like a very big perspective change for you. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, 
it's still something I, you know, I struggle with sometimes, and I know my colleagues struggle with to try to get to grips with that concept. Um, and, and I really lean on, I'm not the first person to come across this concept. It's nonviolence. It's Martin Luther King, Gandhi. Gandhi, when he was in India, he, he went to this general and he said, oh, I'm, I'm going to change, you know, this policy f- in the government. And he said, well, how are you going to do that? And he said, with your help. I'm going to win with your help. And 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 he did. And it's this concept of I'm not in charge of a single animal. The farmers are and the chicken industry are. If I want to change that industry, the most efficient way, I'm a very, like, efficient person, the most efficient way to do that would be to convince McDonald's to do it and Tyson and Purdue. If I can convince them by whatever means necessary to change, that's that means it might happen in my lifetime, which is what I want to see. And sitting down, first of all, with Craig was understanding he's a human being just like me. And we have a lot in common, a lot more in common as two human beings than I thought we would. We have three kids. Like, we care about the same things. In many ways, he cares about his environment. So starting to make those connections was really, really important and made me see him as a human being and, and then allowed me to see Jim Perdue as like a nice guy that I enjoy talking to now and finding, which is like, even now I'm like, oh my God, who's going to write me hate mail right now, right? But it's true. And there's always these common common ground you can find because they're a human being. They have families, they go on vacation, they like sports teams. Like you can find these like common places to um, tear down the the walls that we arbitrarily kind of set up between our so-called enemies and ourselves. So this is somewhere where I, I want to widen it out beyond your work and, and, and animal rights work. One thing that I see a lot of in politics, whatever issue people are working on, and oftentimes just when they're not working on an issue at all, they're just on Twitter or on cable news or wherever they might be, is almost what I've come to think of as an anti-politics, uh, an, an effort to raise up the walls between people and like write them out of the story. Uh, these are people who are powerful. These are people maybe you, you need to win over, but but they become irredeemable to you, right? There's a lot of showing I'm on this side and I'm not on that side. And when the stakes of the things you're dealing with are moral and they're high and people will suffer, that makes a lot of moral sense. Um, and it can even be at times uh, politically productive. It's a very, very hard practice to try to reorient the way you experience people who are carrying out or supporting something you think of as um, awful. But oftentimes in politics, if you're going to win, you need the general on your side. I'm curious about this as a practice to you. You have talked a bit about, well, you have kids and they have kids, but a lot of people have kids. Um, And a lot of people have kids end up writing each other off pretty easily. So what is happening in you? What are you doing yourself to try to get over that aversion, or even to not feel personally compromised, like you're losing sight of the horrors you're fighting uh, in order to, you know, make short-term accommodations with because, like, it feels good to build coalitions. Like, how do you navigate that? It's really hard. You're always walking a line. Um, but I stay focused on impact, and I try not to get hung up on my—I think it's a danger we get hung up on our principles and wanting to look good— and feel good by being angry and blaming. But that, I mean, sometimes it does achieve things, but most of the time it doesn't. And I try to remain 
in a space where I'm constantly like a calculator thinking, does this achieve reducing suffering? Does this move the needle? Is this going to take a step in the right direction that I need to get to? And by taking that lens of, is this going to get me closer to the goal? It helps me get less hung up on ensuring the person agrees with me. I think the most basic tenet of that is that you don't need to agree on everything to make progress. And you don't even need to agree on the central reason why you think something can move needs to mm-hmm. move forward. So with any of these issues, luckily for me, factory farming hurts so many aspects of our world, environment, human health, communities, animals. So I come at it because I care so much about animals. But it turns out farmers are not being treated well. It turns out processing workers aren't being treated horribly too. So if their main thing is we need to, you know, make some some adjustments and progress and we can find that place where there's this, you know, overlap, that's where I try to focus. How do you hold back the feeling that you just gestured to a moment ago? The the idea that being angry, that declaring your opposition, that can feel like an an, an action in itself and it can feel like a, a moral urgency in itself, right? And I'm sure there, there are people in the animal rights movement who have big followings and um, are able to exert a lot of pressure. And it, it's about sort of drawing that line deeply. Like, we are not part of this. Like, we are not complicit in this. And I see that in politics a lot more broadly. I mean, a lot of politics is expressive and symbolic and like, I am not complicit, you know, not my president. And is that just not a an, an impulse you feel? Or do you ever sort of look at the way other people are talking and kind of feel a little bit weird about who you're working with? I'm, I'm, I'm just yeah, curious well, about that complexity. What I've done with my career and my work has really changed how I feel about what's going on in our country right now. And I am very sad that it is really hard for me to have a conversation or even find anybody to have a conversation with that disagrees with me. Uh, we build these bubbles and we stay in our tribes and the tribes ensure we don't venture out of that tribe. And that's mostly done through social media. And I want to understand. I have a deep yearning and curiosity for like, why do you think that? And and maybe there is something like I, you have to have an open mind. Maybe there is a reason why somebody has taken this stance that's equally as powerful as your reason to take this stance. And while you may not agree, there might be something you can agree on. And that's where we can start to make some changes. I'm very concerned about how polarized we are now. I you know, I have a family that's divided in half about who voted for who in the last election, and we cannot talk about these things. It's just not on the table. But what I found interesting is when I went to West Virginia, I did have a conversation with them about guns, about Trump, about all these things that we are different on, and I learned so much talking to them. And I, I just wish those spaces were more available in our country. They're not right now, and they need to be if we're going to actually break this moral gridlock that we're in. I think this can be hardest in families. Um, I was reading something the other day about the respect that emerges from distance. When you're further from someone or something, it can be easier to know less about it and be more curious about it. Whereas when you're closer, when it is your family, it can sometimes feel more like a judgment on you, right? You were talking earlier about people in your family and personalizing that feeling of them eating meat. Like, how can you do this to me? How can you not be convinced by what I am telling you? Like, I'm a professional political pundit and communicator. And like, there are people in my family I cannot convince on key political issues. And it's hard, you know, it's a, 
it is harder for me to talk about that with them sometimes than it is for me to talk to like a George Will on this podcast, right? Despite the fact that, you know, George Will and I are much further apart. Uh, and so that I do think there's a there's an interesting thing where people can the feeling that it can be so hard, so close can actually obscure that it can be easier further away. And I've I've heard the argument that a problem with social media, with Twitter, is that it collapses distance. It makes everything feel close. It makes everybody feel near. It makes everything feel flat. When actually, it, sometimes you want things to feel a little bit more alien so that you can approach it as an explorer um, or a persuader or a coalition builder as opposed to um, it's so close that if you can't win, well, then what does that say about your ability to win over anybody else, right? If you can't convince your family, like what does that say about your ability to actually win the issue? Yeah, I mean – most of us don't behave within our families the way we behave at work, right? We don't. If if I'm sitting there debating the industry or here on this podcast, the way I'm talking to you, unfortunately, I choose not to do so much at Thanksgiving dinner, you know? And if I did, I'd probably do a better job of convincing my friends and family. Or I also just avoid the subject because I don't want to lose their um, closeness. You know, I just think we've had a couple of run-ins. We got really heated really fast. And I, you know what? Life is short. You're my dad. I don't want to lose that, that relationship. And you just put that to one side because in the end, that's one person. You know, convincing that one person is different and then convincing a system. And the work I do is really not down about – it's really admitting – we don't have to convince individuals. We have to convince systems. We have to convince institutions. So when I – the work that that we do now is about institutional change. And institutional change means, it means that if I change McDonald's mind on something, I change the choices for hundreds and millions of people. And that changes the lives of billions of animals. I think there's a real relief in being able to see things as systems too for – Exactly the reason you're you're discussing here. So I'm writing a book about politics, and a big part of that book is understanding politics as a system, not as a collection of individuals. People make the decisions and make the compromises the system incentivizes them to make. And there is respite in that because if you've gone into a place where you're so furious at the individuals, you've uh, exerted such moral judgment on them that they seem irredeemable to you now. Or their their very actions suggest such an unbridgeable gulf that what work is there to really do together? But if you can see us all as part of a system, making decisions that are are, are shaped somewhat beyond us, it doesn't fully take away our moral agency. But most people will do what the system tells them to do, um, and that includes even good people. Right? A lot of good people are just in a good system, and a lot of people making decisions we don't like are are reasonable people trapped in a bad system. And I feel. Th- to me, it can sometimes be a helpful way of demoralizing an issue to recognize that, well, if you could change the system around people, then these very same people would make very different choices. And there's hope in that. It means that you've not lost people. What you've like lost is an institution. And you can you can fight an institution without losing faith in humanity. Yeah. Much of my objective is just to take the bad choices off the shelf. Because most people are in a rush, they're not thinking, and we just need to take, if you think about it, that there, like you said, there's a system that we're trying to change, and people are implicit in a system. They're buying into the system without understanding the real consequences. They're not really choosing the 
consequences of that system. They're doing it because it's what everybody else does. It's cheap. It's convenient. It's the norm. If we take away those bad choices, we take the bad choices off the shelf and menus, in my case, I don't think people would notice that much. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to reframe the argument. It's not us against them. It's all of us against a system that's harming us that needs to be changed, that we need to work together. And to do that, you have to find the win-wins for everybody under that system to really be able to push the agenda forward. Let me touch on something else that came up earlier. We were talking about the scale of this. We were talking about how uncomfortable it can be to, to stare it in the face, to even just talk about it. You were talking about the difficulty you have waking up in the morning, knowing that the number of animals in this system has been going up, not down. How do you manage just the scale of what you're working on and the pain that you've opened yourself up to in it? Mm. Like, how do you go home and have a normal day? Um, how Just like, how do you manage having a sort of personal life on an individual scale and then also having opened yourself up to the suffering on this global 70 billion a year scale and not go crazy? Who said I'm not crazy? <laughs> there. <laughs> um, it's really tough. I definitely have my my dark moments, and most activists do, where you kind of think, um, "What am I doing? Why don't I just? Why don't I, it's not going to work. Let's, why don't I just like enjoy my kids? They're growing up. You know, my oldest is 11, and without a doubt, in seven years, he's out of here." And that's like terrifying that I'm spending my time fighting the system where I feel like I'm spinning my wheels sometimes. And what I'm giving up is real. I'm giving up. I'm giving up uh, watching these parts of my kids' lives that I'm not going to get to see now because I'm off fighting factory farming. But at the same time, I think about the world that I'm going to hand them and the world I want them to have. The world I want other animals to have, wildlife, the planet I want to exist after I'm gone. And I couldn't do anything else. I, I couldn't I couldn't sit knowing that I could have done something, even if it was a sinking Titanic. I couldn't. I couldn't be part of that system. The only choice for me is to, to try to reduce suffering, to try to, you know, I think I said it before, it's a very kind of Buddhist concept, but suffering existed before I was born. It will exist after. The best you can do is try to reduce it. Um, I think that's a good place to end. So let me ask you the question we always used to close, which is, what are three books you'd recommend? Uh, The Meat Racket by Christopher Leonard. It's a book really that educated me on the contract farming system for chicken farmers, really talks about the difficulties of the farmers and explains the contract system. Um, It's another book called Big Chicken. I'm going to do all chicken books. All poultry, let's say. Let's all birds. So um, Big Chicken by Maren McKenna. And she wrote a book about antibiotics in the chicken industry and how they like really grew up together and how, you know, 80% of our antibiotics are now at risk. Or 80, sorry, 80% of our antibiotics are fed to farmed animals. And really that's the chicken industry. And, and, And they don't, they're starting not to work. And she really talks about how that happened and how pressure on animal welfare and improving animal welfare will, um, will be a challenge for us as we try to pull antibiotics out. Um, and then the last one is a totally obscure book, um, which is called Illumination in the Flatwoods by Joe Huto. And he is he wrote about – he's like a park ranger in Florida, 
and he found two dozen turkey, wild turkey eggs, and decided that he would try to raise them. And they basically thought he was the mom. And he became like a mother turkey and lived with them in the flatwoods of Florida. And you get this like beautiful, amazing, enjoyable insight into both like the flatwoods of Florida, but also turkeys and how cool they are. And his love for them and his humor about them. It's its a beautiful, enjoyable story. And your book is called Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. Leah Garces, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Leah for being here. Um, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. And my email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. 